Well, welcome back, everyone. I hope you had a chance to say hello to a few friends. Before Jeff comes up for the preaching of God's word, I'm going to invite Jay to read the scripture passage for us this morning. Our reading today is from the book of Colossians, chapter 3, verse 1 to 11. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetedness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked, when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. It's been a hard week. After more than 50 hard weeks, this was a hard week past that we've had in our city, in our province. We are disappointed, disappointed with our government, disappointed with COVID statistics, disappointed with our personal circumstances and with our relationships, disappointed with the church. What about that? I think... If we're honest, sometimes the weekly routine of church can feel like the weekly routine in the high school cafeteria. Remember that? Meatloaf and macaroni, the same days each week, week after week. And the question that's really always been there at times like ours comes to the surface again, and it's the question, so what? Jesus was raised from the dead. So what? Pass the ketchup. We need help, I think. I think we do with the so what question. I want you to think again about your days in high school. In this section, we are listening to the Apostle Paul. And Paul in this section is, he's not like the chef in the cafeteria serving macaroni. Paul's voice that you're listening to here is the voice of a coach. He's a public school coach. There are no cuts on this team. You will never get cut when you come out to play. But when you put on that uniform, you've got to come to work. Because the uniform means that you're all one means you're united. And if things happen on the team that break unity, 
that stain the uniform, the coach is going to come down hard. Why is that? It's because your coach is passionate for the game, passionate for the pursuit of excellence and victory. And disunity is, is going to destroy the team if it is left unchecked. So Paul is ruthless with things that cause disunity. And you're going to hear that as we dwell on this passage together here today. Here's the big idea today in our, in our message. Because, because of the resurrection, you are all one in Christ. Therefore, put away, put to death things that cause division. We're going to focus on two kinds of divisive practices this morning. We're going to look at sexual immorality and we'll look at anger. But before we do that, uh, before we get into those two, we have to dwell for a few moments on what it means that you are one in Christ. The passage that we're focusing on here is verse 5 to 11. It begins with, therefore. So we've got to see what is before it. We've got to get that in our minds clear to understand everything else here we're looking at. Now you need to see that in this whole passage, every time that the Apostle Paul writes you, that is the plural you. It's not singular. And every time that Paul uses a verb, it's a plural verb. That, that structure exists in Greek. We don't have plural verbs in English. But when you get those verbs in this passage, they are plural, not singular. That means that Paul is not writing to one person, and he's not writing to you as an individual. He's writing to a church, a gathering of people who belong to each other. The whole point here is that you, you all, y'all, y'all are one. You're a team. Look at verse 3 with me. For y'all have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Your life, singular life, is hidden with Christ in God. That means your, your autonomous, your selfish way of living is dead. It's done. And now you have one life, namely Christ. Your life is in him, united. And that means that everything you hear in this passage, you have got to hear it with a team mindset. We struggle as a team together. We deal with sin and with division, with a team mindset, and we heal as a team together. Now, here's the first main point, getting into the, into the paragraph we're focusing on here. You are all one in Christ. Therefore, put away sexual immorality. Verse 5, listen to this. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Here you get a list of five sins, and they're all sexual in nature. Covetousness might seem like an outlier in that list, and it's true that, of course, this can be sometimes greed in general. But 
Uh, it can also refer to an uncontrolled desire for more and greater sexual experiences. In the context, that's the reading that makes the most sense of this word. It's a sexual covetousness. And for his original audience, Paul is speaking a radical word. In the ancient culture, in the Gentile culture, adultery was common. Prostitution was common, available, easy. And Paul says there is no place for it in the church, none. It's got to go. But not just the actions, what else? It's the, the leering, it's the gazing, it's, it's the, the things that seem like no big deal. That too, that's got to go. But more, what? Yes, more. Ultimately, behind all of these things is evil in the heart. It's, it's the evil imagination. It's the evil sexual desires of the heart that come out in actions and looks and glances and thoughts. Kill it, Paul says. And if you're investigating the Christian faith, it's at this point you might be thinking, this sounds a bit much. This sounds like it belongs behind white picket fences in the 1950s. You've got to be kidding. And to that, I would say the majority opinion of our culture is definitely on your side. That's for sure. According to a Barna Group survey in 2016, 90% of teenagers and 96% of young adults are either encouraging, accepting, or neutral when they talk about pornography with friends. So what is right? What is, what is ethical? And to get to an answer, I want to ask the question, how is it going in our culture? For example, the accepting attitude uh, toward pornography, how is that going for us? Gail Dines is the name of a professor of sociology and women's studies in Boston, and she has a book titled Pornland, How Porn Has Hijacked Our Sexuality. And she makes the argument that Pornography does not just feature, it celebrates the degradation of women's bodies. It creates a fantasy world where women love to be sexually used and verbally debased. And we are living with the effects of this as a culture. We are sowing to the wind and reaping the whirlwind in this culture. And me too is just the tip of the iceberg. She writes this in the final chapter. As long as we have porn, women will never be seen as full human beings deserving of all the rights that men have. This is why we need to build a vibrant movement that fights for a world where women have power in and over their lives. Because in a just society, there is no room for porn. That's her argument. She is calling for a just society, and the Apostle Paul is calling for a just society. Paul's calling for the church to be a just society, and in that just society, there's no room for porn. No room. Now, this is the way forward. 
It's this. Together, not alone, together you put to death sexual immorality, evil desire. You make no peace with it. One of the great coaching movies is Any Given Sunday. And in the dressing room at halftime, the last game, coach Tony D'Amato, played by Al Pacino, gets up and he gives this speech. This is part of it. Here's what he says. Life's this game of inches. So is football. I'll tell you this, in any fight, it's the guy who's willing to die who's going to win that inch. Now I can't make you do it. You've got to look at the guy next to you. Look into his eyes. Now I think you're going to see a guy who will go that inch with you. You're going to see a guy who will sacrifice himself for this team because he knows when it comes down to it, you're going to do the same for him. That's a team, gentlemen. And either we heal now as a team or we will die as individuals. That's football, guys. That's all it is. Now what are you going to do? Grace Toronto, that's the choice. I can't make you do this, any of this. But here's the truth. You heal as a team, or you die as individuals. Two applications on this point. First one, change your mindset. In our broader culture, people see, broadly speaking, they, they see pornography like dessert. All things in moderation, right? Not so in the church. Zero tolerance. We do not take this lightly. Verse 6 says that on account of sexual sin, the wrath of God is coming. God looks upon our culture giving billions of dollars to an industry that degrades women and perverts masculinity. And God is not just angry. God is intensely angry over this. Let us fear God and let us hate the things that God hates. Change your mindset. Second, make safe spaces. You need to take as your responsibility to make safe spaces to talk about sexual sin because we're a team, right? You don't, you don't deal with this by yourself, no way. Make safe spaces. This year, uh, we have many small groups with cadres, and that's a, that's a smaller breakout group of men, of women, and it's a really good idea. In your cadre, plan a longer prayer time where you can talk about this together. Have courage to share with your brothers, with your sisters, about what you struggle with. Bring it into the light of day. Don't let it, don't let it linger in the darkness. Bring it into the light. And if that feels too daunting, share with one trusted friend and pray for each other and check in on each other and follow up. And when you feel temptation come, as you surely will, I mean like when it's 2 a.m. And, and temptation is there and you're wrestling with it, <laughs> send a text message to your friend at that time. When they're asleep, that's okay. They'll see it in the morning. 
Don't wrestle with temptation alone. I urge you, don't, don't fight it alone. Do not. For me, I have, there's two guys that I have this, this relationship with, and I have needed it. I have. And, and I've sent text messages to these guys at 2 a.m. And that, that spared me. Just knowing that someone else knows and is going to see it in the morning, that spared me from running headlong into sin. You need friends that you can text at 2 a.m. Rely on your friends, and you be the friend who will fight for that inch for your brother, for your sister. Now, the second main point, you all are one in Christ. Therefore, put away hostile anger. And this has the same structure as the first part. There's a command, rid yourselves of all these things. Put these to death. And then there's a list of five sins. They're all related to anger here. And you you can see a progression in this passage. Paul is the tough coach. And he's going after the things that, that destroy unity on the team. He starts with sexual sin. That's the elephant in the room. That is, that is the most blatant sin that is, that is going on, and, and he names it. Now, he moves to anger. And this, of course, this can be the obvious things like the angry outburst, but it can also be the subtle things that are easy to overlook. It's the passive aggression. It's the, the irritable temper. This is the list of five sins. Here it is. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk. Just to comment on two of these, the word behind slander is blasphemia. We get the word blasphemy. That's normally, of course, speech against God. But here, it's used of speech against another person. Now, someone says, I'm just sharing concerns. I'm just sharing prayer requests. No, Paul says, you're blaspheming the name of that person. You're tearing down their reputation. There's no place for that. The last one here, obscene talk, is combined with slander. And so commentators have said this probably refers to coarse language that is directed at another person or is about another person behind their back and has got to go, all of it. Rid yourself of these things, Paul says. Two applications. First, change your mindset. I think we live in a culture that celebrates anger. I think we watch movies and TV shows that are full of anger and is presented to us as a thing to admire. We have popular shows like Suits, which is full of people blowing up all the time. Scene after scene is this angry confrontation between people, and you get the sense, watching this show, and there's a lot of shows like this, you get the sense that anger is, is productive and it gets things done. And the angry person is the strong person. And the word of God says no. Anger, that might work in the fiction world, but in the real world, not in real life. The truth is, the angry person is a fool. 
A fool gives full vent to anger, but the wise quietly holds it back. Proverbs 29, verse 11. The angry person is not getting things done. The angry person is leaving a trail of bodies behind them. Rash words are like sword thrusts. Proverbs 12, 18. See anger for what it is and for what it does. Change your mindset. Notice foolish anger in the media that you consume. Don't think that consuming this media all the time in an uncritical way, don't think it will not change you and affect you and affect your speech. Be wise, be aware. Second application, make safe spaces. We're in a hard season, and that's not to make excuses. That's just to say this is a bigger problem than ever. We are not meant to live at home all the time. But here we are, and the the constant stress and togetherness is like a pressure cooker. You need safe spaces to talk about this. In small group, confess your sins to each other, to one another. Pray for each other. If you have a brother or sister who confesses this, this, this problem, then you have a problem because you're a team. You don't just hear it and, and hope that, yeah, I hope you can deal with that. No, you're a team. You have a problem too when your brother, your sister has a problem because you're one. The way you deal with this is together. You help each other. And now here's a summary up to this point. Christ is risen from the dead. And for all of you who believe, all of y'all who believe, right, your life is in Christ. You have one common life together. Therefore, it is imperative that you put to death things that cause division and disunity. Now, hearing that, I know that many of you listening feel a sense of defeat and even despair. I have good news for you. The good news is that that there is a strong command here. Yes, there is. There's no getting around that. But this strong command is given to you by a gracious God. That's the context where you receive this instruction. It's the context of God's grace. It's just like Joe said in the opening to this service. Christianity is not an outside-in religion where you muster to change yourself. No. You have a God who is utterly committed to work his renewing, transformative grace in your life, in, in all of your together lives, to change you. There is power in the church for renewal. Look at verse 9. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Did you hear that? The church is being renewed in the image of its creator. And I say to you, Grace Toronto, you are, all of, all of you together, together, you're being renewed 
in the image of Christ. And the one doing the renewal is, of course, God himself. God is utterly committed to do this work. And it's the same commitment that you see in all of the best coaching movies. It's Remember the Titans. Virginia, 1971. Coach Herman Boone is leading the first integrated black and white high school football team. And he doesn't just write them a letter before the season and say, be united, good luck. No, he's with them week after week and in the training camp and he's challenging them and and, and grilling into them and, and calling forth their best, calling forth their best effort, forging them, uniting them into a team together. He's with them. He never leaves them the whole season, of course, because they need that. They, they, have, they haven't got a hope if he leaves. He's with them. He has the vision. And isn't he the most passionate, most committed to see this vision through out of anybody? That's who is with you, all of you in the church together. And here's where all this is going. Verse 11, look with me. It's wonderful. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. That is the audacious claim of the Christian gospel. God's purpose in raising Jesus Christ, so what, so what, that he did this. God's purpose is to create a unity so profound that it overcomes the deepest, unit, the deepest disunity and division between human beings. Racial disunity. Socioeconomic disunity and difference. Now that's a tall order, isn't it? John Lennon wrote the song Imagine in 1971. Imagine a brotherhood of man. Imagine all the people sharing all the world. And what's happened in the years since 1971? Good grief, what's happened in the news in this past week alone? We're a cynical people. We have good reason to be cynical, don't we? So you ask, how is it possible that this can happen? Doesn't it just sound like it's not John Lennon on the white piano anymore? Now it's Paul the Apostle who's playing on the white piano, this naive notion. How can the chasm between human beings come together? How can hatred and, and ethnic hostility, how can that come together and heal? The gospel promises this. They can heal. And they certainly will heal. And the reason is that the risen Jesus Christ does not bring people together as they are. No. Jesus Christ changes people and brings them together. Verse 9, the new self is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. It is a complete change of mind and heart in the knowledge of Christ who, 
loved his enemies. He loved his enemies unto death, torture and death. That's how much he loved his enemies. And when that paradigm penetrates your heart, it is a spiritual revolution. It is a moral revolution. And it's impossible for a community of people changed in this way. It's impossible for them to be gripped by the love of Christ and gripped with hatred for their enemies. It's impossible. In the news this week, we've heard that the Western military presence in Afghanistan is coming to an end. Uh, That's scheduled to end in September of the fall coming up. There's been a long war going on between Western powers led by the United States and the Taliban, enemies of the West. I once had the privilege of meeting a missionary who spent his career in Afghanistan. Uh, This is one of the hardest places in the world to live as a Christian, let alone to do evangelism. But there is an underground church in Afghanistan. And talking to this missionary, he told me that the most noble, the most important value in this culture is called riadat. It means, literally, to lay your life down for your guest, for your friend. And that is what Afghan believers see in Jesus Christ. It's what they they cherish in Christ above everything else. Now, I've never been to Afghanistan. I've never been to a church service in Afghanistan, but I heard that from him. And it filled my heart with the longing to meet my brothers and sisters there and to sit at their feet and to listen to them talk about Jesus Christ and and to be taught by them what they see in Jesus Christ and to try, (laughs) however much I can, to to get into into the worldview of an Afghan believer in Jesus and to see what they see. And that is the beautiful thing when ethnic groups come together in the church. Because of this, it's because different ethnic groups, broadly speaking, see different things in Jesus Christ that they most cherish and prize. And I got to hear about that, just one glimpse of that in Afghanistan. We can do that too in our church. We can, in in Grace Toronto, we have people here from six different continents. And of course our differences are not erased. Of course they, of course we see them and we know them, we're conscious of them. But they they do, they do become relative. They become secondary. What is most basic and most fundamental is what we all have in Jesus Christ together. That is the most important, essential thing that brings us together. That's what unites us. In closing, if, if you're considering the Christian faith, I want to invite you to consider this. Faith in Jesus Christ is the most global, is the most diverse faith 
of all faiths in the world today. And how can it be that people from across the world and from radically different cultures, how can it be that every culture sees in Jesus Christ what they most admire? Many things have a global following, of course, soccer and K-pop, but how can it be that Jesus Christ commands such loyalty among his followers that they forsake everything and follow him? Among all of his diverse followers, they leave everything. They hold nothing more dear to them than Jesus Christ and knowing him. And even, yes, to the point of death, willing to die for him. How can that be? But Christianity is, of all faiths, the most diverse and the most passionately, zealously committed to live and and even to die for his name. What are the implications of that for the possible truth of the Christian message? I invite you to consider it. Jesus is raised from the dead, and so what? The answer is that he is at work in his church right now, renewing and healing division and uniting all things until the last great day when Christ is all and in all. And you can join this, men and women, considering Jesus. You can join this to be a part of what he is doing. It's time to join in. This is for you too. There is a place for you here in the body of Christ. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you for your son Jesus. We praise you for the beauty of his person And like the the many faces of a diamond, many peoples see in him different things that they cherish. He is so magnificent, so praiseworthy. There's no person or thing like him, Father. We praise you for sending him. We praise you for drawing us to know him. We praise you that you have transferred us out of the kingdom of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of your Son, whom you love, in whom is the redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. Amen. Amen. Thanks be to God. We have at this time uh, time to have Q&A, and uh, I've got the phone here with me. So I imagine there might be some questions we'll have a look at. Let's see. Slide to unlock. Uh, okay, next. Um, and, okay. I have a message from Costco client. That is not relevant. Uh, okay. Um, let's see. Okay, there's a question there following up from last week's sermon. That, that will be for Dan to respond to. Uh, okay, here's a question. Pornography is not the root cause of sexual sin 100% of the time. Some will say they don't watch porn, so this does not apply. How do you push back on this assertion? Uh, 
because sex and all its forms of consumption still power society. Um, let's see. Well, uh, let's see, let's see. Um, some will say they don't watch porn, so this does not apply. Um, well, I'm speaking in this message to the majority culture, and um, statistics would strongly indicate that the majority of men and women um, do watch pornography. And so this is a word worth saying, uh, an important word to say, to, to be specific, right, about what specifically is, is um, pandemic. Um, but as you, as you point out here, uh, pornography is not the root cause of sexual sin. No, it's not. Idolatry is uh, the root cause of sexual sin, idols of the heart. Um, And it's the work of God, the passionate, committed work of God to replace the worship of idols, the worship of created things, the worship of the flesh with the worship of himself through Jesus Christ. And so if someone doesn't struggle with pornography, then there is uh, certainly other forms of idolatry of the heart. This passage speaks a relevant word. Um, okay, ne- ne- next question. Um, I'm going to see. Did, 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 uh, why did God give us such a strong desire for sex and intimacy if it so often leads to sin? Should I feel guilt slash shame for attractions that come natural to me? <clears throat> that is a, that's a very good question. I hear the, the wrestling of this question and... I have wrestled with it um, in my own thinking. The fall into sin of Adam and Eve is important as we think about this question because the the view of, of creation that we have in the word of God is that God made all things very good. And, and one of the good things that God made is human beauty. Isn't it good? Isn't it good that God, that God made um, human beings in splendor and in beauty? And um, it's not hard to see, right? We live in a creation that was made very good. And we live in a creation that has fallen into corruption where the good desires that men and women have to, to be together and, and in, to be together in intimacy, uh, which is a marvelous gift that God has given. It's a wonderful gift. That, those, those good desires are affected by the fall, profoundly affected by, by sin, by corruption, such that uh, desires lead into, into, well, the things that we've been talking about. Um, the, the, the things that Gail Dines writes about in her book, Pornland. Um, should I feel guilt slash shame for attractions that come natural to me? I think it was Martin Luther had a quotation. He said, um, I mean, okay, just to preface this. 
walking about, you're going to see beautiful people. We, we live in Toronto, and uh, right now, Martin Luther said that there is a difference between letting the birds fly over your head and letting the birds build a nest in your hair. You're going to notice beautiful people. You sure will. But to allow that noticing to become a lingering and to become a looking and to become a, um, a leering and, and allow, allow desires to, give, to rise in your heart, um, that, that, is, that is, no, there's no place for that. That's what Paul is saying. Put it to death is what Paul is saying because it does you nothing good. And it will lead, sin always leads to greater and greater sin. It, it does. Um, should you feel guilt and shame for, um, for, for desire growing in that way? Um, the gospel would say yes, you should. There is, now, but let me, let me clarify that. There is a healthy guilt and, and, and a healthy shame that should drive you to seek Forgiveness and grace at, at, at the foot of the cross. It should. It should. God is a forgiving God, and he heals and makes all things new. Thank you for the question. And um, I, I do, how are we doing for time? 11.36. Okay, I, I give long-winded answers. I'm, I'm going I'm to do one more of these. I'm very sorry to. Uh, okay, here's one. Um, can you speak about when it's appropriate for us to be angry? For example, you mentioned God is angry about the denigration of women and distortion of masculinity and pornography. What about the anger of people protesting racial inequity in policing? How can we distinguish between anger that is in line with God's commands and that which is not? That's, that's a wonderful question. Yeah, thank you for the question. I mean, it's interesting too, isn't it, that this passage itself says... Uh, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. And then a sentence later, it mentions wrath as one of the human sins that we've got to rid ourselves of, right? So how do we manage that tension together? Well, to be charitable to Paul, he's not, he's not a fool. Paul is writing this, this strong word, against sinful human wrath, right? Which, could we agree, is most, most of human wrath, is most human anger largely sinful, largely corrupt, um, and with wrong motives? That's, that's what he's got in the sights in, in this passage. Now, of course, Jesus Christ himself became angry, um, engaging with religious leaders he, who, who are hypocrites and who pervert the, 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 the teaching of Scripture, became angry. Uh, and his anger is a holy, righteous anger that is, that is called forth and demanded by, the, by what he's facing. Yes. Um, even the proverb that I, that I, I, I quoted, um, oh, no, hang on, it's gone from my mind. A fool gives full vent to anger, but the wise quietly holds it back. I think that's a helpful um, distinction as well. The wise have 
anger, according to that proverb. And yet, what do they do with it? They quietly hold it back. And they, the rest of Proverbs would show that the wise take action, motivated by, by anger, perhaps even. Yes, take action uh, to do what is right and what is just and to seek justice in society. Proverbs, is many verses in Proverbs talk about the, the, the evil of moving the boundary stone of your neighbor's field. It's evil. It's wicked. You can't just take their land. Think about that in the context of our North American history and the, the theft of, of land from indigenous people and, and treaties negotiated in bad faith. It's wicked. And a holy God is angry with it. And, and human beings who read this history and wade into the muck of this history in our cult country are rightly angry, rightly so. But in your anger, do not sin. That's what Paul says elsewhere in the New Testament. In your anger, do not sin. Do not give full vent to your anger. Righteous anger is a restrained and directed and purposeful anger. It's not idle. It takes action with wisdom. And with that, I'm going to uh, um, invite Joe to uh, lead us in a prayer of reflection. Thank you.